When William Faulkner accepted the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1949, he said, the duty of the artist is to describe the human heart in conflict with itself. And that approach is perhaps best exemplified in his 1936 novel, Absalom, Absalom. The story centers on a character named Thomas Sutpin, who, as a result of his ambition and his need to control, drives himself and his family to ruin. And Faulkner took the title for this novel from the story of David and his son, Absalom, who avenges his sister, revolts against his father, but in the end succeeds only in dying, getting himself killed, and bringing his father to ruin. Well, if ever there were a story that depicts the human heart in conflict with itself, it's this one. We've been exploring the question, what is the good life? through a close reading of the books of First and Second Samuel. But as we've been making our way through this series, you may well have wondered to yourself, well, how is it even possible to experience the good life in light of the reality of suffering? It's impossible for us to escape the suffering that we bring upon ourselves or that is inflicted upon us by others, especially those who are closest to us. And that's a real issue with which we must contend. Christians are not immune to the experience of suffering. As one author put it, Christians get in as many automobile accidents as everybody else. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, it's going to hurt just as much after you give your life to Christ as it did before. And you're just as likely to say something you shouldn't in front of the kids as you did before. So how can we experience the good life in the midst of the reality of suffering? It'd be great if we could avoid it, but you can't go around suffering. The only way to the good life is to go straight through suffering. And so in our passage today, I'd like us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18 and see what we can learn about the source, the sorrow, and the solace of suffering. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open up a Bible. I'll be referring to several chapters in 2 Samuel spanning from chapter 13 to chapter 18, but I'll be reading from chapter 18, which you'll find on page 270 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading 2 Samuel 18, verses 31 through 33. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, let me provide a little background as we consider the source of suffering in David's life. And as I do, I'd like to try to help us get inside David's heart to know what it actually felt like to experience life as he did. 
Sometimes when people pick up the Bible for the first time, they're shocked by what they read because this book is not rated G. The Bible does not present life the way that we might want it to be. It presents life the way that it really is. And that's certainly the case when it comes to David's life. David's third son was named Absalom. And he is described as the most handsome person living in Israel. He didn't have a blemish from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. If People magazine existed 3,000 years ago, they would have thrown Absalom on the cover. And Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And both of them had a half-brother named Amnon. Now, tragically, Amnon became infatuated with Tamar and sexually assaulted her. It's one of the most horrific stories in all of Scripture. And when Absalom finds out about this, he is outraged. And he promises that he is going to avenge his sister's honor. But he doesn't do it in the heat of passion. No, he takes his time. He's going to plot his revenge. And so he takes two years to plan and to scheme. And then he chooses an opportune time to murder his half-brother Amnon. So Absalom gets his revenge. And David, for his part, is comforted. He's comforted by the fact that Amnon has died in light of what he did. But nevertheless, murder is murder. And so Absalom is forced to flee. He has to go and live in exile. And 2 Samuel chapter 13 gives us a window into David's heart. Because it tells us that David's spirit longed, longed to go out to Absalom, to reach out to him. But he didn't. So after three long years, Absalom lives in exile, and eventually David relents and lets him return home, but only because he's pressured into it by Joab, the commander of his army. Joab puts political pressure on David to let Absalom return because he's worried about protecting the dynasty, the house of David. And so David relents, he lets Absalom return, but he does not let Absalom enter into his own presence. And so here we see David's heart in conflict with itself, caught between political pressures on the one hand and personal feelings on the other. He lets Absalom come home, but he refuses to set his eyes on him. On the one hand, he longs for Absalom, but at the same time, he hardens his heart against him, and that will become the source of future problems. So Absalom, you could say, was home, but he wasn't home. 2 Samuel 14 tells us that David gave him a place to live, but he did not give him a place in his heart. All Absalom wanted was his father's acceptance, but all he got was his father's rejection. And the irony here is that David fails to show the same kind of love and forgiveness and grace that God had shown him despite his transgressions. But now David withheld his love. He refuses to forgive and he denies grace. And it only makes things worse. So how did David get to this point? What is the source of all this suffering? Well, remember, after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged to have her husband Uriah killed with the sword, God warned David that as a result of his poor choices, he had introduced a sword of conflict 
into all of his relationships. God said that the sword will never depart now from the house of David. And so now we see that all these poor choices are coming home to roost. Actions have consequences. Last week we said that the greatest obstacle to the good life is not our circumstances, it's not other people, it's our own sin, or what we called our human potential to mess things up. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, you bring your sin with you, your human potential to mess things up. And so sometimes the answer to the question, why do we suffer, is simple. You've got no one else to blame. Actions have consequences. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we suffer through no fault of our own. And Jesus makes this especially clear in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. His disciples present to him a man who was born blind. And they ask him, who sinned? Someone must be responsible for this. There's a connection between sin and suffering. So who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, neither, neither. It was, was not this man, it wasn't his parents. It was so that the works of God might be displayed. So you see, Christianity offers an utterly unique view on suffering because it strikes a critically important balance. Christianity rejects deterministic fate on the one hand and moralistic karma on the other. Jesus tells us that our suffering is not the result of impersonal fate in a predetermined universe. No, our choices matter. But at the same time, we're also not doomed by karma. Karma is the idea that what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. For every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. And sometimes that's true, but not always. And so if people tell you, well, you think your suffering is unfair, but it's really not because you've got no one else to blame. You must have done something to deserve that. Well, just turn to the book of Job because that's precisely what Job's counselors thought. And they were exposed as false comforters. Here, Jesus says, no. No, he doesn't deny that there is a connection between sin and suffering. Ultimately, all of our suffering can be traced back to humanity's fall into sin and evil. But though there's a connection, it's not nearly as tight as you might think. Sometimes, perhaps most of the time, we suffer even though we haven't done anything wrong. It's simply the result of living in a fallen world. Now, the Christian view on suffering is more mysterious, and yet it's more hopeful because God has promised to do something about it. But whether we suffer as the result of our own deliberate fault, or because of the sins of others, or simply as a consequence of living in a fallen world, there's no escaping the sorrow of suffering. And our passage today provides us with an up-close and personal look at David's grief. As the story continues, Absalom eventually gives up all hope of being able to reconcile with his father. David has rejected him as his son, so Absalom, in return, rejects David not only as his father, but as the king. But as with Amnon, Absalom takes his time. He steals the hearts of the people, 
And then after four years, he seizes his moment. He proclaims himself king. He captures Jerusalem, and he begins to plot David's assassination. So now David is forced to flee the city of Jerusalem, and 2 Samuel 15 tells us that he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who went up the Mount of Olives with him went, weeping as they went. So Absalom's rebellion turns to a full-scale civil war. But even here, we see the conflict in David's heart. He sends his men into battle against Absalom, his son, who's leading this civil war. But even then, he gives them instructions in 2 Samuel 18 to deal gently for his sake with the young man Absalom. Even at war, his heart continues to long for his son. He asks his commanders to deal gently for his sake with the young man Absalom, but his men disobey orders. Absalom ends up getting involved in this freak accident. He's riding a mule through these thick branches, and then somehow his head gets stuck in the branches of an oak tree, and the mule just keeps on going. So there's Absalom now, suspended in midair, and that's where David's men discover him. And Joab, the general, ruthlessly pierces him in the heart with a javelin. Now he knows that David does not want to receive this news. And so who does he send to deliver it? Not himself. Not just somebody else. He sends a foreigner, a man from Cush. Now, of course, this Cushite assumes that David will be overjoyed to hear that his enemy has been defeated, that he has been victorious in battle. And so he comes to deliver the news, and in verse 32 of our passage today, David anxiously inquires, is it well with the young man Absalom? But when the man from Cush reports that he's dead, despite everything that has happened, David is overwhelmed with tears. Now this may be the most poignant expressions of grief in the entire Bible. Verse 31, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You can just hear the heartache and the pain in his voice. He must have experienced so many conflicting emotions. And it's only now that his son is dead that David finally comes to terms with his failure as a father. And isn't that true of all of us? We often don't stop to actually think through how we have wounded other people with our words or how we have left scars because of the things that we've done or failed to do. We might be filled with regret because we didn't take nearly enough opportunities to say, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm sorry. We always assumed that there would be more time to make things right. But now it's too late. They're gone. The Yale philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff lost his son, Eric, who was only 25 years old at the time, in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. And after 
grieving this untimely death, Wolterstorff began to document his grief in a journal, and he did it for himself, but he later decided to share what he'd written with others, and so his grief was published as a book entitled Lament for a Son. And as people read it, they wrote him letters, and he was surprised to hear how these intensely personal reflections of his own helped others give voice to their own pain. So here's one example of what he wrote. We took Eric too much for granted. Perhaps we all take each other too much for granted. The routines of life distract us. Our own pursuits make us oblivious. Our anxieties and sorrows unmindful. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. We do not treasure each other enough. He was a gift to us for 25 years. When the gift was finally snatched away, I realized how great it was. But then I could not tell him. I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. What do I do now with my regrets? Over the time I neglected to take him along hiking, over the times I placed work ahead of being with him, over the times I postponed writing letters, over the times I unreasonably got angry with him, over all the times I noticed the hurt and times I didn't but should have, over the times he was sad and I saw, but I did little or nothing to console, over all the times he was something wonderful or did something fine and I was oblivious or silent, sometimes because my own projects were my single-minded pursuit, sometimes because my own worries were my single-minded concern, and sometimes because I did not want his excellence to go to his head. What do I do with this basket of regrets? I believe that God forgives me. I do not doubt that. The matter between God and me is closed, but what about the matter between Eric and me? For my regrets remain. What do I do with my God-forgiven regrets? I shall live with them. I shall accept my regrets as part of my life to be numbered among my self-inflicted wounds, but I will not endlessly gaze at them. I shall allow the memories to prod me into doing better with those still living. And I shall allow them to sharpen the vision and intensify the hope for that great day coming when we all know we can throw ourselves into each other's arms and say, I'm sorry. The God of love will surely grant us such a day. Love needs that. Now, do you realize what Nick Wolterstorff is doing here for us? He is modeling for us, as do the Psalms, how to be brutally honest before God. Do you see the emotional realism here? Christianity does not ask us to deny our emotions or to try to distract ourselves from feeling them, but rather to deal with them, but to deal with them before God, to bring them before God in a form of prayer which is called lament. And it is essential that we learn how to lament. We must give space in our lives to lament loss. A failure to lament is a failure to connect. And if we're going to live the good life, we can't go around suffering. We have to go straight through it in all of its sorrow. But the question is how? How? Where can we find solace in the midst of our suffering to be able to stand up underneath it? 
Well, this passage contains some of the most heart-rending words that we'll find in the scriptures. After all the damage that had been done, after all the harsh words that had been spoken, after all the violence that had been perpetrated, after all the attempts to reconcile had been left untried, after all of the love, all of the forgiveness, all of the grace that was withheld, David cries, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. And that, of course, is the cry of every parent. No parent should ever have to bury a child. But it's not just parents and children, it's all of us. Those are the words of anyone who has loved. If the one you love is suffering, well, then you wish that somehow you could experience it with them, or you wish that you could experience it for them. And that's exactly what C.S. Lewis's experience was. Some of you may know that he married a woman named Helen Joy Davidman in a civil marriage in 1956. And one year later, she was diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of cancer. And so they were married in the Church of England in the hospital by an Anglican priest. And she would only live three more years after that point. And like Walter Storff, C.S. Lewis kept a journal documenting his grief which he later published in a book entitled A Grief Observed. And if you're familiar with Lewis's writing in which he defends Christianity, this book can come as a bit of a shock because it reveals Lewis at his most honest as he grapples with questions of God's goodness in the midst of suffering. And at one point, he writes these words, yet this is unendurable, and then one babbles, well, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. But one can't tell how serious that bit is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a real possibility, then for the first time, we should discover how seriously we had meant it. But is it ever allowed? It was allowed to one, we are told. And I find I can now believe again that he has done vicariously whatever can be so done. He replies to our babbling, you cannot and you dare not. I could and I dared. Is it ever allowed for one to suffer for another? It was allowed to one. You cannot, you dare not. Jesus could and he dared. Christianity provides an altogether unique perspective on suffering because the gospel is not primarily theoretical, it's practical. The Bible doesn't engage in philosophical speculation about the origin of evil and suffering. Rather, it's focused on providing us with resources so that we might cope with the reality of suffering. So what is it that Christianity provides? Well, it tells us three things. It tells us that Jesus suffers with us. It tells us that Jesus suffers as us. And it tells us that Jesus suffers for us. See, first of all, it tells us that we're not alone because Jesus suffers with us. When you're really suffering, when you're in the throes of grief, you don't want philosophical arguments trying to explain why whatever is happening to you is happening. No, what you want is presence. 
You want someone to come alongside you who at least has some semblance of understanding of what you're going through. You want them to be with you, to sit with you, to stay with you. And don't you see, that's the heart of the gospel. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus did not remain at a safe distance. No, he became a human being, and he entered into our world of sorrow, suffering, and pain. And that's why the scriptures describe him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In Jesus Christ, we do not have a God who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. No, he's experienced everything we have and more. And therefore, you can never turn to Jesus and say, well, you just don't know what it's like, because he does. And you can never turn to God the Father and say, you don't know what it's like to lose a child, because he does. But Jesus not only suffers with us, Jesus suffers as us. Just picture the scene here, David ascending the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, and later wishing somehow, some way, he could have died instead of his son. And then a thousand years later, Jesus ascends that same Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes. But that one thing that David was not permitted to do, Jesus is allowed to do. In that same garden, in the Mount of Olives, Jesus accepts the cup. He accepts the cup. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He accepts the cup of suffering and death so that you might live. He vicariously suffers for you. This is not the impersonal fate of a deterministic world, nor the moralistic karma of Jesus getting what he deserved. No, Jesus willingly goes to the cross in order to suffer and die, not because of anything that he had done, but because of what we had done. And that's how he interrupts the consequences of our actions through his grace. So Jesus does what no one else could. We might say, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her, or instead of him, We could not and we dared not, but Jesus could and he dared. And that changes everything. Of course, we will still experience suffering in this life. But what has Jesus actually changed then? We see Jesus has taken the sting out of death by conquering over it. So yes, we still experience suffering and death, but it's a mere shadow of the reality that he experienced. And that that means that our experience of suffering and death is really more like a vaccine as opposed to experiencing the real disease. We've been inoculated against the real thing. Jesus has completely transformed even the worst suffering into merely a bad dream from which one day we will wake up. But you see, Jesus not only suffers with us and as us, but for us. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that's what gives us hope. See, rarely could we ever say with any kind of assurance, well, I know exactly why this is happening to me right now when we're going through a bout of suffering. Rarely could we ever say with any confidence. But the cross shows us that the apparent triumph of sin and evil is only temporary. The cross was intended to be a vehicle of death and destruction. And yet God in his providence and his love turns the evil of the cross on its head 
So it's no longer a vehicle of death and destruction for us, but rather now it's a vehicle of life and salvation for us because it was a vehicle of death and destruction for him. You see that? How does God accomplish our salvation? He doesn't take Jesus around suffering. He takes Jesus straight through it. And as for Jesus, so for you, the only way to the good life is not by going around suffering, but by going straight through it. But imagine what that tells us. If Jesus, so you. Jesus' suffering tells us that you can suffer even if you trust God. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. And you can suffer even if you haven't done anything wrong. This isn't punishment. And you can suffer even if in this life you have no idea why. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a reason. We're still in the middle of the story. And just imagine what God can do in and through your suffering if you let him. So let me close with these final words by Nicholas Wolterstorff. As he recounts his grief, he says, For weeks, Eric's boxes of books and clothes stood in the entry, and I couldn't bear to move them. And finally, I began carrying them off to the garage, and while carrying the fifth box or so, I heard his cheerful voice, loud and clear, calling from the entry, Hey, Dad, I'm back. With every fiber of my being, I long to talk with Eric again. Every day I wonder, and some days I doubt, whether that'll ever take place. But then comes that insistent voice, remember, I made all this, and raised my own son from the dead, so I can also. I know, I know. But why don't you raise mine now? Why did you ever let him die? If creation took just six days, why does recreation take so agonizingly long? If your conquest of primeval chaos went so quickly, why must your conquest of sin and death and suffering be so achingly slow? I don't see how he's going to bring it off. But I suppose if he can create, he can recreate. I wonder if it's all true. I wonder if he's really going to do it. Will I hear Eric say someday, really, now I mean, really, hey, Dad, I'm back. But remember, I made all this and raised my son from the dead so I can raise yours too. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that even though the source of suffering in our lives is often a mystery, you are always at work to bring it to an end, and that is what fills us with hope. And so we pray that you might draw near to us in the midst of our own sorrow, and that you might encourage us with the solace of the gospel, that Jesus is with us, that he not only suffers with us, but as us, and for us, that he has done what no one else could do. He has blazed a trail through death and out to life on the other side. Give us the courage to follow after him. We ask this in his name.
Amen.